Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Ali Nurani and his team at the National Immigration Forum are on the front lines of the debate over immigration. They're looking for practical solutions to fix the country's immigration system. They've talked to people all across the country in living room conversations, and they produced a fascinating report called Out of Many One. My team at Hathaway Communications, with support from the Ford Foundation, has also been talking with people all across the country. We've talked with people from all walks of life about their aspirations for their lives and for their communities and their country. We call our program American Aspirations. Ali and I thought we'd use this episode to compare notes on what we've been learning and share the insights and ideas with you. Here's our conversation. So tell us about the living room conversations. What was their purpose? Where did you go? What, who did you talk to? Well, I mean, a lot of this kind of came from conversations you and I had um, probably the end of last year as you were starting to think about uh, the American Aspirations uh, Project and that it for us, it kind of it led me to realize that Sure, we've been doing work in conservative and moderate parts of the country, but we were not really sitting down in an intentional way after the 2016 election to just, again, kind of test, not just test, but really kind of listen to people. So the way we thought about this is that we wanted to do a learning campaign over the course of really the first two quarters of 2018. And what we did is that we went to about 26 different rural and suburban communities and really tried to sit down with folks and ask the question of, okay, what does it mean to be an American? What are your fears and aspirations when it comes to immigration? Um, and then ultimately, how do you think that this conversation should play out? And it was a really interesting process because, strangely enough, it was very useful. Um, we partnered with um, More in Common, the shop out of the United Kingdom. It's been doing a lot of interesting research. Uh, and it was useful because um, people were very honest with us. Right there, we did them in living rooms. It was a very kind of comfortable mm -hmm. uh, environment. You know, we didn't call them convenings. We didn't call them meetings. We called focus them groups. <laughs> right, focus groups, even <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and it was just it was an interesting process because you know we got a lot out of it. So, uh, paint a picture for us. Mm -hmm. You know, bring us into a living room. Who's there? What did you talk yep. about? So the first one that I moderated was in a Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Right, so you, know, you fly into Spokane, right? You stay the night in Spokane. You drive 30 minutes east across the state line into Coeur d'Alene, which is just this gorgeous community. Um, you know, it's got this beautiful lake. Uh, um, it's partly a tourist community now, but historically it has you know pretty rural population. Um, it's part of the state that's easily more socially conservative than you know probably most parts of the country. And we end up in a living room of a church leader that we had gotten to know. And in the room, as I remember, were a handful of folks, leadership from the evangelical community locally, uh, the principal of a local school, a couple of business leaders, uh, um, a couple of other folks from the education community. And it was interesting because some people came in with deep-seated kind of feelings and like they were for legal immigration, against illegal immigration. Others are part of the conversation because they kind of wanted to learn more. Uh, and you know, each conversation was about an hour, hour and a half, uh, kind of walking through this discussion guide. And you know, what we learned was that this question of American identity is coursing through the electorate. Uh, uh, fears around security, economy, uh, culture come up in different ways in, in different communities. But ultimately, there was this um, sense of 
and I think this comes through in some of your work, is that, uh, you know, there's a sense that, okay, there's a common set of American values, but they're also really localized. Uh, okay. And, you know, that the person in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, yeah, they see themselves an American as an American, but not in the same way as the person in Corpus Christi does. Mm. Um, so I don't know, I mean, does that match with kind of what you, what you all saw? Yeah, in American Aspirations, we similarly had conversations with people all across the country from all walks of life. Um, uh, we did bring them to a focus group center and recorded everything. And <laughs> That's never... so sterile and boring. <laughs> right, <laughs> but right. you probably pay them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And every word gets recorded and goes yeah. into a database that linguists analyze. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking of the within two weeks of the 2016 election, we were in Grand Rapids, Michigan, yep. which is one of those areas that went for Trump and surprised a lot of people and was sort of that part of that narrow win that he had in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and we got people in the room who didn't know it, but didn't know how each other had voted, but they had voted for Trump, Clinton, and Jill Stein. Mm -hmm. um, and started not by asking them who they voted for, but what are your aspirations and concerns uh, about your community here? And they, a lot of them said similar things about the kind of community they wanted to live in and their concerns. Um, and then it, and it was only through the conversation they started to realize, oh, they had different takes on the politics, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but they were able to keep it focused on those common concerns and aspirations they had for their, yeah. for their community versus the country as a whole. Right, so there's this national narrative, left against right, blue against red, et cetera, et cetera, which they were all part of in one way. Mm -hmm. But when they were talking about their own community, what they wanted for it, there was a ton of common ground, and um, so that was one distinction we saw. And the other was, to your point, people will say things like, "America means equal opportunity for everybody," uh, and that means different things depending on your position. And we've been looking at common ground language around big ideas like that. Mm -hmm. um, the Coeur d'Alene conversation was very different from, for example, at least of the handful that I moderated was on Corpus Christi. Uh, you know, Corpus is obviously right on the water in South Texas. Um, it's interesting. The demographics of Corpus are interesting because it's 60% Hispanic, but I want to say only 10 or 15% foreign-born. So it's a very diverse city, mm -hmm. but it's also a city that is kind of a, a kind of a long-term native-born community in Texas, and it's culture, you know, politically pretty conservative. And we ended up um, we did a, a living room conversation. In this case, it was at a, a local community center, and um, we ended up recruiting a couple people. Our organizers recruited a couple people from the like a Republican county commissioner event the night before, and um, so this was easily the most politically diverse group both politically conservative and, you know, in the room was kind of the, a really good representation of the city. There's, you know, probably like 40% of the room was Hispanic, a couple of folks who were African-American, the balance was, was Anglo. And there's one gentleman there who I, I remember talking to in the coffee before, and um, it was clear he was there with a really clear opinion on immigration. He was not a fan of undocumented immigrants. And over the course of the conversation, all these questions around security and kind of border, the border come up. Mm -hmm. And I made sure that as we were going through the discussion guide, it was always kind of draw him into the conversation. And I uh, kind of veered off script a little bit at the end of this, this conversation where I just asked, so, okay, put yourself in my shoes, right? Working in Washington, D.C., trying to have this conversation we've just had nationally. 
Uh, so I think I asked them the question, okay, what's the inf immigration system you'd like to see? And this particular gentleman had the best perspective because he had kind of realized that in this conversation, his fears and anxieties were being heard, mm -hmm. as were his kind of aspirations for corpus. Uh, and he says, I'd like to see an immigration system that's tough but fair. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we can work with that. Yeah. Right? And uh, those are the kinds of things that kind of kept coming out in all these different, these different conversations. Mm -hmm. And in that context, what's tough and what's fair? So for him, as I recall, and even in that, that wasn't even just about him, but that the, the, the conversation, so it was driven by and large, the tough part was driven by and large by crime or the perception of crime, yep. right? Which I think we see over and over again in different polling. Fair was both fairness to the taxpayer in terms of kind of the burdens, but also there's also an element of wanting to be fair to the migrant. Mm -hmm. So that people could actually access a process, whether to enter legally or to be able to even legalize their status. Mm -hmm. um, so the tough part was always, shouldn't say always, more times than not around uh, um, public safety or security. But the fairness always, kind of the fairness to the American as well as to the immigrant. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. You had mentioned in your report, mm -hmm. um, which was called Out of Many One, mm -hmm. Um, that the political polling suggests broad agreement on immigration policy, quote-unquote, and asks if that's true, why does our immigration debate seem so fractious? What's your, what was your take on that? Yeah, um, I think oftentimes when we write these reports and we kind of look at the polling, we look at it from a national perspective, mm -hmm. right? So nationally we see a consensus, right? When you see, kind of take the full block of voters and say, 60% of Republicans want the DREAM Act, or whatever the number is today, right? Um, but then when you, when you localize that to people's particular realities on the ground, these questions will come up uh, of, is there a public safety threat? Is there, am I losing, is the American way of life being lost? Mm -hmm. Is, you know, is the economy going to thrive or be hurt, burdened by immigration? Um, so I think that 60, 70% consensus that we always point to, is challenged at the local level by these fears. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And as advocates, I think we have to do a better job of localizing our work so that those fears are acknowledged in our conversations and they're seen in, and reflected in the national conversation. I just feel like at the national conversation, we tend to assume a lot of things um, as opposed to life being really complicated at a local level. Right. And I know in our work, we take an aspirational approach. Mm -hmm. We try to understands people's aspirations for their lives, for their community, for the country, and connect causes to that so that we're really connecting with what people, um, what really motivates people, what they really care about. And when we test messages and poll and so forth, we'll ask these aspirational questions and get um, really promising results. People saying, yeah, that is my aspiration. But when you get down to reality, you have to, they are still facing anxieties. Right. Um, and you have to overcome those anxieties to get to the aspiration. We did work with a coalition of Muslim organizations um, that felt under assault for good reasons, mm -hmm. you know, in the political conversation and the culture. And, um, and there are those, you know, whipping up fear of Muslims, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, well, on one hand, when we're talking to people, we're talking to people who had mixed emotions um, 
or internal conflicts about that. And they would aspire to not judge people based on their religion or what they look like and to be welcoming of, you know, new immigrants um, and to value people's contributions to the country. So, yes, and those were authentic aspirations. Right. And at the same time, they hear about terrorism or they don't know anything about Islam and hear these. Um, and those anxieties are actively whipped up. And you have to address the anxiety before you can get to the aspiration because fear is a emotional response that blocks out, mm -hmm. you know, blocks out mm -hmm. the other stuff. So as you're doing the, the work, uh, looking across issues, is there anything that surprised you? Or you're like, well, this is completely unexpected. Um, yeah, sort of overall in terms of all the common ground that mm -hmm. we found on lots of different ideas about the country. So for American aspirations, it was a little different. You were talking to folks about immigration. Right. And we were talking about America, the country, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's amazing how people, yeah, they have ideas in their head about what that means, what it means to be an American. And um, we heard a real yearning for unity, we called it people. And the data, like more in common, um, who you mentioned, uh, who we're going to interview on this, our podcast yep. as well, um, found a lot of yearning for unity in the country. Most people do not like the divisiveness. I think the divisiveness and the political conversation reflects the most partisan of us, right? People like the fight and see the other side as a threat. Um, and that's all legit, I get it, but most people actually are like that and are upset by that and don't want to live that way. So that's one. Um, and I think the opportunity is for leaders of organizations and political parties, whatever, who actually genuinely can unify people. But then specifically, we started exploring people's ideas on things like what we are calling cultural narratives, ideas mm -hmm. about the country that are so common in the culture that they sound like common sense, like everybody in America has, has equal opportunity, you know, you just have to work hard. And for a lot of people, that's not their experience. And our clients and colleagues who are working to help address inequities in society um, need ways to, need an alternative narrative to address that. I wanted to share some with you because uh, we tested a couple dozen sort of high-level ideas like that mm -hmm. about America, and we were surprised at the results. Hmm. Let me see if you're surprised about some of these. Um, so here we tested them head-to-head. -head. One statement, and uh, imagine getting this on your phone, and you open it up and you see these two statements, and you're just asked to pick one. That's called an intuitive response survey, right? We just want to mm -hmm. know what's your gut reaction to these two things. One, everyone has equal opportunity in America if they work hard versus opportunity is not equal in America, even for people who work hard. Many people still face barriers because of their race, gender, or where they were born. Any guess on how that might play out, you know, percentage-wise in the population? 60-40. 60 being? 60 on the latter. That opportunity isn't equal. Yeah, yeah we have 54% on that and 32% everybody has equal opportunity. Yeah. So upwards of 20 points difference. Yeah. Um, and about 14% saying neither, they didn't know. Yeah. Um, so by that factor, you have people, it's not a controversial statement to say opportunity isn't equal. We saw the same thing in looking at the language people use to talk about these ideas. Um, 
And people from across the political spectrum said, yeah, it depends on where you're born, depends on where you come from, how you start out in life, was the way most people understood the, the differences in opportunity that people have. Mm -hmm. So right there we have a common ground idea and common ground language to talk about it that isn't politically fraught or partisan in and of itself. So when when you uh, kind of gave those two statements, I kind of go, I've been doing some reading on um, how conservative faith America, conservative evangelical America has been, looks at the civil rights movement and racism. And um, so I saw that first statement as kind of one of personal responsibility, yeah. right? And the second being uh, uh, um, kind of the more systemic, right? Yeah. The system is the issue. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like that, and the personal responsibility perspective is politically more conservative, right? Um, and I feel like that is a big part of the political debate, this personal responsibility versus kind of the role of the system or the role of government. Yep. And that's not new, obviously. Um, but it does feel like in this environment, things are a little bit, like the eggs have been scrambled. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when we look at the 2020 election, I don't feel like Democrats are speaking to aspiration. They're not speaking to political, personal responsibility. Um, they're speaking to, okay, this is what this administration is doing to yeah. make the system even worse. Right. Right. And I, <laughs> I don't, I, I'm stuck of kind of how do you make the case to elected officials of kind of, okay, it's okay to be aspirational about this stuff. Yeah. Um, because you're just kind of falling into a trap here. Yeah, I agree in terms of the politics um, or any leader yes. who's looking to lead people forward is to show that vision of the, the positive vision of the future, um, not just focus on the mistakes of your opponent. And, um, and that's, a, you know, putting my political hat on and thinking about, you know, if I were, you know, a candidate running against Trump, I wouldn't try to out Trump Trump and be all negative mm -hmm. when the country's, when the bigger opportunity is yearning for unity in the country and being solutions oriented. Uh, that's what's different in this political climate, not just being the opposite, yeah. you know, of who's in power, whether it's Trump or anybody else. Um, and on that note of individual responsibility, we find, have found in this work with American Aspirations, sure, people aspire to stand on their own two feet and believe in individual responsibility. That is an aspiration, and eight out of ten Americans say, mm -hmm. yeah, I want to live in a country where people take responsibility for themselves. At the same time, Eight out of ten also said, "I want to live in a country where people look out for each other." Hmm. So, these are not mutually exclusive. These are not mutually exclusive. What you you hear individual responsibility in the political dialogue all the time, usually with a, a preachy tone wagging their finger at you, right. right? And you hear very little about social responsibility. And we found that in our conversations with people about these big ideas. Everybody in our focus groups could right off the top of their head talk about individual responsibility. They hear it all the time. And then when we asked about social responsibility, it was crickets. Hmm. And the difference there is what's, what is common in the culture? What are people hearing particularly in the political conversation? But I'm going to try another one out on yeah. you, another message we tested in this category. Um, kind of like there's the individual part of things and there's the system. And I think our political culture and dialogue is sort of hyper-individualistic. Right. And the system, the infrastructure, the stuff we all do together is kind of invisible to people. Um, so here's another one. Um, statement one, if you're willing to work hard, you can make it in America. 
Statement two, it takes more than our individual hard work to succeed. We all need tools like education, healthcare, and a job that pays enough. Mm -hmm. So the old, all you got to do is work hard. Well, yeah, but you need these other things right, too, right. which are provided by the system, education and healthcare, et cetera. Uh, and policy mm -hmm. enables those things. Mm -hmm. It's not just luck. Um, any guess on how that one? I'm going to go 50-50. I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was the same number as the last one, 54% saying, yeah, it mm -hmm. take, you need these tools. Mm -hmm. That's part of what opportunity makes it real and not just a buzzword or a slogan is how I see it. Um, versus 34. So again, 20 point difference, a significant, um, significantly larger number of people intuitively agreeing that, yeah, you need these tools. And those tools are provided by the taxes we pay, we contribute to that. And the people we elect and the policies we enact all have something to do with whether everybody has good education, health care, and a job that pays enough. So what we often found in kind of the living room conversations was that um, in terms of local institutions, it was the the you know the church that I think people saw as a place where they could connect with others, whether of, of kind of more diverse backgrounds. There's often conversation about local government and the role of local government. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a distrust of the federal government, um, but it we I wish we had done more digging on kind of how people define kind of the local institutions that are important to them and to their families, livelihood mm -hmm. and and future prosperity. Um, you know, another work that we found is you know, the schools and like the superintendents and principals um, and teachers are, are play a large role in, in people's lives in you know, smaller towns and cities. Um, but it's, I, I feel like it's an, it's a question that, that I would like to learn more about of, or learn more about is kind of what, what, what is the role of local institutions? Yep. Yeah, it's funny because it sounds very familiar to the old um, saw from public opinion research that people hate the federal government, but they love their Congress. Right, right, right. And we've seen that a ton of times where the national narrative is this is very much alive in people's minds. You can't get away from it. But it's about this myth of the swamp and and all the rest. And your local perceptions of your local um, institutions and government and people there are much more grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a big dichotomy there. Right. And people are usually satisfied with the public servants they know. And the rest, you know, are all going to hell in a handbasket. It's like why they believe their local television news anchor. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To feel like they, they know that person. Yeah, it's right. what's around you is what matters. Right. Um, but it's funny how the national narrative looms large, so large in the media and in people's minds, there's a huge disconnect. And mm -hmm. I think it's the national narrative and the national politics is what's causing so much, a lot of the division and angst. And But people see solutions happening locally, certainly when, you know, they don't see Washington as capable of accomplishing anything. And we asked people, because one thing we did hear across the political spectrum from people from all walks of life, the system's broken, quote unquote. So we did whole conversations. What do you mean by the system? How do you know it's broken? Mm -hmm. And um, they were usually, it was interesting, the defining it was broken as, well, look, the schools don't have what they need, you know, to educate the kids and people are without health care. They're talking about these tools not being there for people, interestingly. It was evidence that the system wasn't working. And um, and needs to be broken and blown up was usually because referring to the national level. 
versus examples of people in the local community. And it usually started with volunteering, not civic engagement like going to your city council meeting or that sort of thing. People's minds first went to volunteering in their local community as a way they can help make a difference. Um, and said it was up to us as individuals within our communities to change the system. Mm -hmm. So again, always bring it back to the local sphere because that's where you feel empowered to do anything. So in the immigration context, what's your, what should we be doing differently uh, to speak to people's aspirations? Interesting, because you guys are really great at that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Um, Thank you. <laughs> because, you know, from my perspective as somebody who's not an expert on the topic, but knowing that um, immigrants to this country are hardworking people um, who contribute a lot to make this country work, and that most Americans, certainly that I've heard from in the vast amount of research mm -hmm. we've done for American Aspirations and other projects, respect that. You know, respect people who are trying to make a better life for their family and are willing to work hard to do it um, and to treat other people with respect and to see dignity in other people, those are American aspirations, right? Mm -hmm. And my lesson in it, I guess, comes from working with the marriage equality movement, actually. Um, and I had an opportunity to take a whole month working on a book about aspirational communication and digging into this, the experience of the marriage equality movement, which we worked with for about 10 years and uh, speak to uh, Evan Wolfson, head of Freedom to Marry, who is a real sort of architect of the strategy and the movement. And he said, you know, ultimately, it, what, what happened was not just getting straight people who are literally voting on this issue, you remember, to have empathy for same-sex couples wanting to get married. Um, it went beyond that. It helped them live up to their higher aspirations for the kind of people they wanted to be. Because when you look at, like the folks coming to your living room conversations mm -hmm. you described, had mixed emotions, or they were conflicted, to use the term we used in the marriage movement, or the psychologists would call, say they had cognitive dissonance. Conflicting ideas, conflicting values, conflicting emotions. That's what it means to be human. Right, right. right? And so you've got people who respect the dignity of other people, honor honest hard work, can relate to wanting to make a better life for your family, and being, you know, it's actually aspiring to be an American citizen. That's all worthy stuff. With being concerned about somebody breaking the law, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, so it's telling the stories that, and providing people opportunities to understand, you know, to empathize with immigrants, which I don't think is hard, actually. That's not hard. Right. And what opportunities for them to speak out or take action that resolve this conflict in favor of, I'm going to be somebody who in a divisive environment like this, where fear is being whipped up, to step up, um, speak my values, my truth about this, which is I'm going to respect the dignity of people, look for solutions to make things work, not demonize people. Mm -hmm. um, and they did a whole... Uh, line of work in the marriage movement um, helping people resolve that internal conflict and uh, advertising and conversations with people uh, that they called uh, the journey, how to help people on that journey. Similar, I think, to what your program with uh, white evangelical women mm -hmm. 
and they have a Bible study, and they use that to talk about immigration and work it through themselves, right? Right. That's ex similar to through what their, and, but it's through their cultural framework. It's not us saying this is what we think you should believe. Exactly. Right. They say we believe these things. Right. This is how we think it is to be Christ-like, right. um, and that is to be welcoming, right, mm -hmm. and lean into love first before judgment, things like that, and then they apply it to your issue. And what the um, social science says, that's called elaboration, meaning thinking about it, <laughs> which results in durable attitude change, meaning the people who have that conversation and, and resolve on their own terms that they're going to, you know, make stand up for fairness here. They're not going to be talked out of that. They're not going to be influenced by the next, you know, tweet that's supposed to get, you know, rile up their fears or the next mm -hmm hot-button political ad that's supposed to make them angry. But it's also they're going to feel more confident talking about immigration, this example, with yep. their friends and family. Totally. So I feel like um, one, I think one of the big takeaways, whether it's from the conversations or just from the work over the last few years, is that if we are making a policy argument, if, we're, if I'm trying to convince you based on policy, I'm not going to win. Yep. If I'm going to invite you into a conversation about immigration uh, around a common set of values and beliefs that people should be treated with dignity there's you know we can have that conversation back mm -hmm. and forth and you can have a you can have a complicated conversation that moves the needle uh, based on that sort of invitation um, so I've been kind of trying to think about the difference between or convincing or persuading yep. and inviting yeah uh, and you know I think for us it, it, it's a subtle but I think an important distinction it's just a it's a different mindset Totally. I think so entirely. Because you're talking about conversations that start with not, here's one side says this, one side says that, who do you agree with? Right. Similar back to the marriage movement, when we were working on that issue in Massachusetts, the first state to allow same-sex marriage, um, we didn't start that way. Um, we started, instead of saying, one side says you know, this about gay marriage, one side says that, who do you agree with? You're immediately starting within the partisan political context. And that sort of, that right there invokes sort of the partisan response. Like, oh, I'm a Democrat, and I know the Democrats are supposed to think that, so I'll just say that, right? Versus marriage, what's your aspiration? That's a totally different conversation. Most people say, well, it's a commitment you make, you know, aspirationally for your lifetime. Um, preferably, preferably to somebody you love, right? Preferably. Start there, and you have a different conversation about these couples who also have that aspiration but are denied the marriage license. And you get to the policy, right, right. via a real conversation where people think about their own perspective on this versus this image we have of sending out messages and people just agree with them and, and you think you've changed something. I think these these messages that I was sharing with you, to me, are seeds of a conversation. But this is also kind of the difference between that 60 or 70 percent approval for the DREAM Act and yep. kind of actual reality and the, the conflict that people have. Yep. Is that is that fair? I mean, the... Again, the so I think there's a couple things going on, right? Like they'll agree with the DREAM Act right. for whatever reason, the way that you've described it in the survey, that sort of thing. And then it depends on what team they're on, right? right, and how partisan they might be. What we run up against is when people's political identity is operative. So I'm a Republican. 
I'm supposed to be for, you know, against illegal immigration, da, da, da. I know how I'm supposed to think about this. That's a lot of what happens. So your task in this particular case is um, for to get people to step out of that political identity and think about it in their own terms, maybe in relation to uh, thinking about it as uh, a parent wanting to do what would you do for your kids if you were in a country in Central America where they were where you couldn't feed them and they were under constant threat of violence what would you do and put them in the role of parent versus role of partisan yep. that's part of um, looking at the social identity dynamics and getting people to look at it through a new lens so the way I've been thinking about this is that we want people to for, in some of our work We'd like people to think about immigration as a person of faith, not a person of politics, mm. and kind of gets them out of that, the box that is, you know, Republican versus Democrat. Yeah, totally. So then how do you, what I struggle with is, okay, we've done these conversations, we've learned a lot over the last five, six years, um, and I hate this term, but how do you scale it, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I gotta hate that term. Yeah. Um, because it just feels like, you know, there are very few people or institutions that have wide influence anymore. Yep. Um, yeah, we have to uh, create opportunities for people to have meaningful conversations in their own communities and then connect to meaningful action. Mm -hmm. And all this is scalable thanks to technology. Um, and what we do is... Facebook was broken today, though. The entire world almost broke, you know, yeah, melted yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, hopefully, well, thankfully, there are many other tools besides right. Facebook. Um, the uh, it's good to get past these hegemonic platforms, you right. know. But yeah, well, back to I think the example of your um, welcoming program, I mm -hmm. think it's called, mm -hmm. um, where you have members of a community, in this case, evangelical women, organizing conversations and equipping people. Um, to have their own Bible study conversations about this topic, there's no limits to how you could scale that, right? right. And that, as you know, is about um, targeting your resources. So that's a very targeted effort. Um, we are thinking about another, a similar undertaking um, called Recipe for Unity, which was a program of Unidos US, mm -hmm. which is the largest Latino civic, civil rights organization in the country. And they did... Um, uh, pilot program with half a dozen cities, I think, and brought people together very much like your living room conversations, mm -hmm. uh, except it was around food um, and dinner. And similar, and the conversation was a bit broader about the community and people's shared hopes and concerns about the community. Um, and they had really great results from that. Literally, people just seeing others from different political and cultural backgrounds right. literally sitting down at the same table. That's like news in America <laughs> today, right? Uh -huh. Sad to say. Uh -huh. So that in and of itself is a breakthrough. Um, and so we've been uh, playing out ideas of how to scale that. And you've got, you've, they've created a cool experience that people can have. And we were thinking about ways to do visible ones like that, like get a bunch of well-known people from different backgrounds to do it. Um, that'll uh, that people can see um, happening and be inspired by to inspire somebody to show them right mm -hmm. what's possible, and from there to have a simple sort of toolkit people could use to organize that sort of thing in their own community, and talked about getting together sort of influencers 
and do one of these dinners in each of the 50 states hmm. and using the local media and local networks to do it. Um, and that's a lot, of course, that, but it comes down to like 50 dinners. Right. But there's, it's a simple organizing thing. Um, but then telling the stories out of that so they don't happen in isolation. Um, so those are the tools we're using to think about scaling things like this. And, the, you know, they can really take off. I think what we're talking about is the difference between some piece of content going viral, quote unquote, that is then forgotten the next day for the next cat video or whatever it is that goes viral versus meaningful conversation and meaningful engagement with people. Mm -hmm. That's where we have to focus our time and resources. Yeah. And we find like a, in the context of the immigration debate, uh, um, doing those conversations in parts of the country that are really struggling with this issue is where you, you start to, to, to get the politician to understand, okay, there's something going on here. Um, otherwise, it, you know, we can do a lot of these things in San Francisco, but you know, the politicians in San Francisco, are not, they're not the ones we're trying to move. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was um, a lot. Yeah. So I got one more question for you. Yeah. Uh, so since, you know, I know this is a hybrid uh, uh, episode here, but uh, my last question for every guest is to finish the sentence, only in America, dot, dot, dot. Only in America. Only in America can you really get people together who really have very different life experiences, um, whether it's within this country or other countries. Um, to sit at a table and feel like they are part of something out of many one, to your point. Um, I've been to upwards of 50 countries and maybe, and yeah, you do see that, but I think it is unique hmm. to this country that we have this aspiration, this ideal that we can and should be doing that. Um, and that makes me, you know, part of what makes me happy and proud to be an American when we do that and do that well. Um, my question for you, yeah. which we end our podcast on, <laughs> is to think about uh, an innovation or a trend mm -hmm. in communications, technology, advocacy, whatever writ large um, that you're keeping an eye on or you think would suggest people keep an eye on. Hmm. I think, and I was a skeptic of this for a long time, I think how people are using video is really interesting. Uh, and... I think that you know the the way that videos are also combining text, so you can see the picture and the words at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you just see those tactics becoming more and more effective um, over the last couple of years. And I think that because, um, like for me, I like the words, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of like watching a video. Yep. But if I can get both at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, there's something there. And um, yeah, that's that. I think. I think that's one thing I keep an eye on. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, great. It's been awesome. great Thank talking you. with you, comparing notes.